Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In the period immediately following World War II, the United States dominated the global economy. We had won the war and the economic status that went along with it. Then over time, and initially as a result of our efforts and generosity, other economies began to grow. Japan, West Germany, Canada, Australia would all stir. But still, the world would, in the war's aftermath, acquiesce to an American-imposed system of monetary order, underpinned by gold and by the U.S. direction. But after 28 years, the children would grow up. The other economies of the world would come into their full inheritance, so much so that by the time of the Nixon administration in 1971, we had to accommodate that change. What happened next as Nixon and his economic advisors would meet secretly at Camp David in August of 1971 set the stage for our modern era of globalization. The gold standard would be abandoned, the Bretton Woods Accords would be abrogated, and a new world economic order would be born. I think it's fair to say that it's impossible to understand the global economy today without understanding that moment. And to take us back to that moment, I'm joined by my guest, Jeffrey Garten. He's the Dean Emeritus of the Yale School of Management. He still teaches courses at the school on the global economy and was formerly the school's dean. He served as Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade in the Clinton administration and was a manager at the Blackstone Group and Lehman Brothers. He has written for dozens of publications and authored several previous books. His most recent is Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Garten back to this program. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Well, it's great to have you here. Let's go back to that period right after the Second World War and talk a little bit about what came out of that in terms of the reshaping of the global economy in the post-war period. Well, um, I, I, you have to remember that the, the Second World War basically shattered everything that existed when it came to the rules of the game for international commerce. And so, uh, you know, you mentioned Bretton Woods. That that was the name, really, of a uh, of a town uh, in New Hampshire, where the U.S. Uh, gathered uh, the Allies. The the only one of which was really influential was England. Um, and what happened is they decided to recreate, or to create from scratch, actually a new monetary system. Um, and, you know, they, they could have done anything they wanted at that point. The U.S. could have imposed anything it wanted. Um, but what they, what, what they settled on was a system that would provide a lot of stability and a lot of predictability for international trade. And the heart of that was that the dollar would be the single international currency and it would be linked to gold such that it would cost, such that for every $35, you could get one ounce of gold. And that became a solemn American commitment. And so if you were uh, in Germany or you were in Japan or you were in England, you were anywhere, you were very happy to hold dollars and to use dollars because in the back of your mind was, that if ever the U.S. started to follow really, um, you know, ill-advised policies, 
or if ever you had more dollars than you could possibly want, you could go to Fort Knox and you could exchange the dollars for gold. And while very few people did that, it was in the back of the, their mind that they could. And so the dollar was, as, as President Kennedy said, and as President Johnson said, time and again, the dollar was as good as gold. And that was really the heart of a system that uh, created an enormous amount of prosperity. I mean, after all, Germany and Japan were totally decimated. And within 10 or 15 years, you know, they came back very strong. And there were a lot of other countries, um, England, Italy, uh, you know, other countries in Asia. They all came back in large part because of their, their hard work, you know, and their industrial nature, but, but also because there was a very solid currency at the heart of the international system. And that currency, the, the U.S. dollar, was backed by gold. What were the forces that, come the 1970s, started to create pressure on the U.S. And, and, and Nixon ultimately to begin to consider what changes might need to be made? Well, um, the idea that the dollar would be backed by gold um, also encompassed another, another idea, which is that um, people would hold dollars around the world so long as there weren't too many dollars, you know, thereby kind of cheapening each one. And so long as there wasn't inflation, which would erode the value of the dollar in terms of what it could actually buy. And towards the end of the 60s, just before Nixon was elected, you know, we were in the middle of the Vietnam War and we were spending a huge amount of money, not only on the war, but on the great society, uh, great society programs, uh, the the you know um, Medicare, uh, aid to cities, massive amount of new social programs that President Johnson uh, inaugurated. At the same time, we were bleeding money, you know, for for Vietnam, and and so we started to experience inflation. And that was the number one problem when Nixon became president, that he was very worried about inflation. But the second thing that was happening was that the U.S. began to feel the pressure of competition from Europe and, and, uh, and Japan. We had not run a trade deficit. In other words, we had not, our exports had always been larger than our imports until 1971 when we started to run deficits. And that was a signal that we were losing our competitiveness. And because our trade deficits got bigger, because we were importing so much, we were pushing out dollars. And while everybody was taking the dollars, they were getting very nervous that there were going to be too many dollars, too much supply, and so this combination of having too many dollars and worrying that each dollar would be worth less because of inflation uh, made people, I'm really talking about governments, governments started to think, you know what, we better get the gold while the, while the getting is good. 
And that scared the life out of Nixon because the fact is that we didn't have enough gold to back all those dollars. At the, at the end of the Second World War, we had 160% coverage. That is, we had much more gold than there were dollars in the world. But by 1971, believe it or not, there were so many dollars abroad that the amount of gold we had was only 10%. In other words, the emperor had no clothes. And uh, Nixon was worried, what if everybody comes to get their gold at the same time? We would appear to be bankrupt. So we had to do something very dramatic. You mentioned that there had been this long history in the post-war period of backing the dollar with gold, that Kennedy talked about it, Johnson talked about it. What were the risks that Nixon had to consider as he took this on, as this secret meeting took place, which we'll talk about, what was the potential pushback to Nixon about doing this? That's a great question. I put it this way. On the one hand, we didn't have enough gold. And so we were very worried that other countries would call our bluff. And it was an economic problem to be sure, but it was also a really, real big political problem. Because remember, this was in the heart of the Cold War. And if we reneged on our commitment to exchange dollars for gold, we were afraid that our allies would begin to wonder whether we would renege on other kinds of commitments too. And so um, one of the risks of mucking around with the dollar-gold relationship was the uh, cohesion of, of our alliances. And I just wanna, you know, it's, it's, we have to kind of go back in time. Um, we, we, want, we want allies today, but in terms of, you know, the real urgency of it, in 1971, we were in the middle of this nuclear standoff with the Soviets. Um, and we were in a contest for loyalty of developing countries all over the world. So we really had, uh, what, what our word had to, be, uh, uh, had to be credible. So that was one risk. The other risk of mucking around with gold was that this had been the vehicle for this massive reconstruction of Germany and Japan. And not incidentally, enormous prosperity in the US in the 50s and 60s. And you know, it was a different kind of prosperity that we have known since because it was it was middle class prosperity. This, you know, we did not have the the income and wealth extremes then. Uh, certainly nothing like we have now. And so all all the growth was going to the middle class. And if you say, well, the dollar was at the heart of this, and then you start to think, hey, I'm going to make a major change in this dollar-gold relationship, you've got to wonder what happens to the status quo, which was actually pretty good. Talk about this secret meeting. Who did Nixon gather? Who were the key players in this when he got together at Camp David 50 years ago next month? Well, Nixon had about six very, very um, impressive advisors. And the interesting thing is that a couple of them were totally unknown and, and, and then uh, in subsequent years became you know, quite famous. But the leader of his team 
was known well, well known at the time. It was John Connolly who had been the, the governor of Texas, actually three-term governor. And Connolly was a really tough character. Um, strangely, he didn't really care about international relations at all. He cared, he was more, he would have been very much at home in the Trump administration. He was a nationalist and his motto was, let's screw the foreigners before they screw us. But Nixon surrounded him with people who really cared about allies, really cared about the global economy. And so there was a quite, a, quite a good balance. And one of those people was a guy named Paul Volcker, who nobody knew at the time. Um, and of course, Volcker emerged years later as probably the most important economic financial figure in, in American history in the, in, the, in the 70s and the 80s. And then there was a young fellow named George Schultz. He had come from the University of Chicago as a dean. Um, nobody knew who he was. And of course, he eventually emerged as one of the great statesmen, uh, American statesmen of the 20th century. And there were three or four others, uh, a fellow named Pete Peterson, who became a major Wall Street figure, but at the time was a very young CEO uh, from a, a company called Bell & Howell. And Nixon brought them all up to Camp David and basically said, we got a problem. We can't cash in dollars for gold, but if we change, if we say that, we run some really enormous risks. And for three days, they tried to hammer out what could they do, but they had to move off the mark because they didn't have the gold. And it was a very dramatic set of meetings and, and they came out with a unified position. How much did Nixon understand in terms of the scope of this? How much of this was driven by Nixon himself? Well, that's another great question. You know, I think what Nixon knew was he had kind of a big picture. He wanted to maintain our alliances at all costs. He actually thought that the global economy as it was structured was, was a great idea. It's just that the U.S. wasn't get, getting a fair shake. And he saw the dollar as being overvalued. That meant that our exports were becoming too expensive. And if you have a very strong dollar, overly strong dollar, you tend to suck in more imports. So he wanted to change the value of the dollar versus gold so that it would be not worth, not $35 one ounce, which was the, the equation at the time, he wanted to make it more like 38, 39, 40 dollars an ounce, which meant that each dollar would be worth less. Um, but he didn't know how to get there uh, without upsetting the entire international system. And more than that, he was very concerned that American citizens would think that this was a humiliation, that we were we were kind of pushing down the value of the dollar. So he really needed these advisors to explain to him how could it be done. But he was a leader. I mean, he said, we're going we're gonna to have to do something. And the other thing is, all those people who were around him, they actually had very different views. And it was Nixon that sort of hammered, hammered them into a coherent view, and everybody stayed on the reservation, which was quite a, quite a feat. It's interesting that Nixon's view as, as a globalist, as somebody that understood the world and, and those skills that he brought to it were invaluable in this, it seems, in so many ways that, that he could see around some of the corners to the globalization that, that we know about today. 
Well, you know, I was very surprised because when I started this book, um, I, uh, I was just, I didn't know that much about it. I didn't know that much about this situation. I, I knew it was a monumental decision and that it had not received a lot of attention, uh, you know, by historians. And so I wanted to write the story. And uh, I grew to feel that Nixon, we think of Nixon through the prism of Watergate scandal and all the horrible things he did. But, you know, before Watergate, he was actually a very, uh, a very skillful president. I mean, we, we can argue, you know, various politics, but it was Nixon who opened China. It was Nixon who um, started to, to deal with the Soviet Union in the context of what was called detente, that you know we, we were we were um, lowering the temperature and we we're beginning to discuss the first arms control agreements, um, and Nixon was you know he was very concerned with the average American, and he felt that the arrangements in the monetary system needed adjusting so that the U.S. could become more competitive. But he never once thought we have to change the entire system. He just thought the U.S. was put in a position that it couldn't compete so well because we were carrying the burdens from the Second World War, and he wanted our currency to be devalued and the Germans and the Japanese to make their currencies more expensive. It was a major adjustment, to be sure, but it wasn't saying, let's get rid of the whole system. Um, so, yeah, he did have a worldview. And, you know, the, Nixon was... Uh, uh, he, he came to political maturity during the Marshall Plan, uh, and he was of that generation that basically felt we did good in World War II. We, you know, we, we, we created something afterwards that was really worthwhile. And let's not throw the whole thing away, even if we have to make some adjustments inside. Talk about the architecture of this change. Who was, was the principal architect of it? And more specifically, this notion of how this transition would take place, how we could decouple from gold as, as the standard. Well, um, in, a, a, in this secret meeting, you know, which took three days, um, and by the way, it was very secret. You know, the, everybody had instructions when they were coming up to Camp David that they couldn't even tell their family uh, that where they were going. And there was no phone service, so they, they, they embargoed all phone calls in and out. And remember, this was long before there was anything like a cell phone. So um, it was quite secret. And they came up with a plan, which was to say to the world, you can't have gold for dollars for a while. And what we need to do is we have to have an agreement that the dollar will be worth less and especially the German and the Japanese currencies would be worth more. And then we can go back to some kind of gold, but we're not sure how because we really don't have, we don't have enough. And maybe we'll do something else, tie these currencies to something else. But we want to fix them vis-a-vis -vis one another. It's just that the dollar has to be devalued and made you know, more competitive. And they proceeded that, uh, that Sunday night, Nixon made a big speech, told the whole world, Everybody was shocked. It was such a uh, it was such a surprise, and it was such a uh, a change in what everybody had known. I mean, remember, you know, billions and billions of dollars around the world, and everybody who was holding a dollar suddenly wondered, what is this thing worth? If it's not gold, what is it? You know, who, 
what is what does it mean to have a currency that's not backed by anything? Um, and they proceeded to negotiate with other countries about devaluing the dollar and revaluing the German and, and Japanese currencies. And they got an agreement in three months, and the dollar was devalued by about 9%. Um, but then the oil crisis came, and oil prices started going through the roof. You know, OPEC was formed. They embargoed the U U.S., as we know, they quadrupled the price. And the whole world economy went into a tailspin. And so the fixed rates that were negotiated all fell apart. And when the smoke cleared, cu currencies were floating against one another. And that has been the system. I mean, that system emerged a couple of years after the secret meeting. And that's the system that we live with today. Um, so in a way, Nixon and his guys didn't get what they originally wanted. But actually, it was pretty good, the system that, that emerged, in the sense that, um, at least good for, certainly good from the U.S. standpoint, because the amazing thing is there's no gold backing for the dollar, and yet the dollar remains the, the central currency in the world by far. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it, it, is, uh, it gives us enormous uh, leverage in the world, and it also allows us to run deficits in the way no other major country can because all we have to do is print dollars and 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 people around the world still want to buy them so we have a great we have a a, a phenomenal advantage now some people would say yeah it's too much of an advantage we're running up these debts as though they don't count now that that's kind of another story but but we don't have the constraints on us and we can you know, we can put sanctions on other countries. We can do a lot of things that we couldn't do if the dollar wasn't the world's central currency. Did they consider this notion that the dollar would simply float against other currencies? What they came out with was this kind of interim step, you know, we'll get back to gold later and, 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 and the way you described it. But was, was that really the plan or was that just a way to sort of present this to the world and ultimately get to this kind of floating system that we have today? Well, it's a really wonderful question because officially we wanted to keep the currencies linked to one another once the dollar was devalued. But there were a couple of people around Nixon who felt that having currencies linked to one, one another was really an antiquated notion and that they should move up and down. Um, one of those was a guy, was George Schultz. And uh, so, you know, I think historians would say that some of the top American officials were delighted with these floating current currencies and others, and Paul Volcker would have been on the other side, felt that if you didn't fix currencies against one another, you have too much risk. And, you know, you end up creating a global economy that looks like a big casino. Um, and, you know, from my standpoint, they were both right. Um, we do have a major financial casino with all kinds of risks and all kinds of banking crises, which we never had before 1971. Um, on the other hand, we have flourishing trade and we have, uh, you know, we have uh, a, a thriving business culture. Um, and I don't know whether you could have 
fixed currencies, even if theoretically you wanted them, because the, the fortunes of various countries move up and down, and you need some uh, kind of safety safety valve in allowing the country the, the currencies to move up and down is, is, is a safety valve. It's hard to think about in today's culture, almost impossible, I think, particularly for people that are younger, but that there was this, well, well, certainly there were people politically that were opposed to this. There was a kind of coming together within the political class behind what Nixon was doing. Yeah, you know, people ask me all the time, what is the big difference between 71 and now? In both cases, we have, or then they had in the beginnings of inflation, and it looks like we are too. They had trade deficits, and we are having big trade deficits. They were really concerned about American competitiveness. Uh, the concern was just starting, but you know we're certainly concerned about that. Um, they were trying to corral allies to help them. You know we're doing the same thing, but one of the real one of the real big differences, frankly, Jeff, is that even though Nixon had, even though with this, there was a lot of social division, I mean, after all, it was the Vietnam era, and they had their racial problems and all that, um, there was a, a center in the U.S., a moderate center, you know, that included Republicans and Democrats. And so Nixon, who faced Nixon being a Republican, of course, faced the Democratic House and Senate led by Democrats. There was enough moderates so that you could actually move policies. And uh, I don't think that we're close to that today. Before we wrap it up, talk a little bit about today and whether the system that came out of that, the system that we have today, this, this globalization that we have today, is again reaching some kind of inflection point, that that the world has changed enough since 1971 that maybe once again we need to take a look at all of this and think about it anew. Well, I think you're right, and I, I, I will point to uh, a couple of factors. Uh, one is China. We have never faced, the world has never faced a single country like that which is as powerful and influential and also very, very different in its structure and in its policies. Second thing is, I believe we are at the beginning of a new digital era. I mean, people say, well, it's, everything is digitalized already. I, I don't believe we've even started compared to what's going to happen. And so we're going to have digital currencies. We're going to have cryptocurrencies. Um, and the whole notion of what is a currency, I think, is up for grabs. And third, I think the dollar is, is going to be in trouble. Um, it's not just that the Chinese may compete, the Chinese currencies might compete, and uh, digital currencies might compete. But, you know, even our closest allies are very concerned that the United States is... Um, is losing its democratic foundation. And when I say that, I don't mean the party, obviously. I mean the, unit, the, 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 the nature of our institutions. We, the dollar is not tied to gold, but it is tied to institutions that people around the world really had respect for. And there is a great concern that 
that you know these institutions are eroding as our very democracy comes under so much pressure. So I think these are some of the factors which basically well, make you think that, um, you know, should make us think that we're reaching another inflection point in terms of the, the global rules of the game. And um, I hope the U.S. is up to kind of the, the kind of effort they made in 1971. It's an interesting switch in some ways as you look at this period that, that you write about in three days at, at Camp David. There's a sense that, that the economy was driving the politics, that the economy was a primary concern. When we look at it today, it seems to be standing on its head. It's almost like the politics is going to drive economic decisions, and it doesn't seem like anything good necessarily can come out of that. That's very well put. That's very well put. Um, and the politics is is not rational, and it is not. There's not enough in the, of a center to basically say to, to to be asking what's in the U.S. public interest when you consider that we're part of a very complex world and that there are going to be a lot of big changes. You know what what do we need to do to take care of ourselves and also deal with so many of these big global problems, whether it's pandemics or climate change or cyber issues, you know, we can't, I think Nixon understood this. We can't isolate ourselves. Nationalism is fine, but it has to be married to some broader vision of how we deal in the world because it's not, you know, all the problems outside our, our, our borders are going to come back to haunt us. And we've got to be part of the solution. Well, we hear it today in, in this talk about just the solution to China simple. We'll just decouple. It's not quite yeah. that simple. Not quite that simple. Jeffrey Garten, the book is Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy. Jeffrey, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it was a real pleasure. Thank you.